If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, famous Christmas story, Luke and, and Matthew give us their perspectives. Um, and, and John as well, as Austin was reading this morning, uh, we get John's perspective of the Word all the way to the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus in the end of verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, this, this morning, what we're going to look at and focusing in on the idea of Emmanuel, this, this word meaning, and that's its meaning. If you weren't sure on that, Emmanuel. So when you sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, like how we opened up our service this morning, or you hear these songs this week, uh, maybe, as you listen to Christmas music, and you hear that word Emmanuel, let that sink in, that it means God with us. And really what I want to argue this morning is that changes everything. That God is with us. You see, in Matthew 1, uh, Matthew, the, the writer of this, this incredible gospel, writing the story of Jesus. We've been studying the book of Mark today. In this next two weeks, just focus in on the book of uh, Matthew and uh, looking at the Christmas story. But Matthew is going to quote a passage of Scripture. I want to read you the, actu- the, the passage of Scripture that he um, quotes. It's in Isaiah 7 verse 14. It's a famous prophecy. And I want you to hear this, that it was written 700 years before Christ comes onto the planet and comes onto the scene. And it's Isaiah 7 14. So think about this. 700 years prior to the events that we see at Christmas and we celebrate at Christmas, this prophecy was given. And it was the prophecy that Matthew's also going to quote. And we're going to look at it again in a little bit. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I love how John Wesley, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, two brothers um, uh, who are really remarkable people. When you think of a lot of the hymns, I mean, John Wesley wrote probably thou- literally thousands of hymns, some that we still sing today. And, um, Char- and, and Charles Wesley, or sorry, John Wesley, on his, one of his last words that we have from his life, when he's lying in his deathbed, here are his last words. He said, the best of all is this, God is with us. You see, Matthew, when we turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is going to begin with this idea that God is actually come. He comes and he comes to live and dwell among people. But also, if you look at the end of Matthew, he bookends it. He begins with this prophecy that I just read from the virgin will conceive and give forth a son. And we're going to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he's showing how Jesus has come to be with humanity. But even though at the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, in the great, what we title the Great Commission, Jesus says these final words to his followers. The 12 are with him. They've gathered together, 11 at this point. The 11 are gathered and maybe a few other followers of Jesus at the time. And he says, he he makes some promises. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's the command and here's the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And he says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But then he makes, we might think of that as the focus, but then he gives an incredible promise. He makes this promise of saying, I will be with you. He promises 
his presence. So from the very beginning, while he's on earth, he comes and he dwells with people. Emmanuel comes and he's God with us. But even after he ascends into heaven, he promises his presence through the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer. I want this truth to resonate in our hearts this Christmas season. The idea that God is with us. He has come. You see, in the Old Testament, Almost every time God comes down and appears, it's pretty terrifying. (laughs) He comes in kind of terrifying ways in the Old Testament. For instance, with Abraham, when he establishes his covenant with Abraham, he comes as a furnace moving through the air. I have no idea when I read that every time. I'm like, I don't even know what really is happening. And I'm a pastor. I've studied the passage. It's a a very unique story, but it's this picture of this fiery furnace, this furnace moving through the air. And 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 he's continuing to state to Abraham, I'm going to keep my promise. But it comes in a very unique way. With Job, we see he comes as a, a tornado. I mean, I don't know if you've seen a tornado. Uh, thankfully, hopefully, I have only, uh, I've only seen them in my dreams. Uh, but each time, I'm totally terrified. I don't know if you have those kind of nightmares. I have those nightmares. Tornadoes, I, I think it's because I saw Twister when I was like 12. Or, I think, or Twister, Twister, I can't remember the name of the movie. It was a lot of Twisters, is all I remember, in that movie. And they were everywhere. And so literally, about once every year or few months, I have this terrifying dream of tornadoes, and they're really, really close. And I'm just absolutely terrified. I don't know why uh, someone would actually drive towards them. (laughs) But these weather guys, uh, they do it. And so here, God reveals himself and comes through a tornado. He does that also. Uh, He comes as a whisper, but he begins with this storm and fire when he's speaking to Elijah as he's hiding him in the cleft of the rock. When when, uh, God appeared to Moses, to Israel, he was like a pillar of fire um, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And when God entered the temple in the Shekinah glory, the cloud that would come over the tabernacle and, 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 and showing his presence with his people, When he was there, no one could enter into it. You weren't allowed to just go and hang hang out in the the Holy of Holies. Only once a year would this great high priest enter there after a lot of uh, ceremonial cleansing. He wouldn't enter. So when you see him in the Old Testament, it's kind of fierce. It's with fire. It's storm. It's kind of terrifying. And so you can see God and hear about him or his works, and maybe that leads you to terror, or maybe it leads you to worship. But what you do is you can't experience him from a distance. You don't experience God from a distance. You can watch and see and notice things about him. You can even see it in scripture and read stories about Jesus and be amazed at Jesus. But there's a difference between seeing and knowing. Uh, my kids are about to go on a journey on literally the other side of the world uh, and, and get on some planes and fly to see their cousins that they haven't seen in over a year. And when they go, they're going to go to the beach. And, and I, I can't imagine the thought of me taking them there and saying, or my uh, in-laws taking them there and then saying, all right, so look at the water, look at the nice... Look at the the Pacific Ocean or look at these different things. Look at the water. Just kind of look at it, but you're not allowed to touch it. Even though it's 85 degrees, it's smoking hot in the middle of winter for us as we leave, as they leave when it's like 10 degrees here and then go over to to humidity and heat. And they're like, oh, there's there's the ocean. They can appreciate it. But you know what my kids love to do? My kids love to experience the ocean. 
They want to jump in and try to attempt to knock over a wave. You're like, you're not knocking over this wave. But they're punching them, right? Here comes a wave. Punch the wave. You know, have you ever done that? I still do it every once in a while. Um, you know, you, you try to hurdle a wave or try to, to feel the power and the presence of those waves in that ocean. You see, there's a difference between looking at the ocean and experiencing it. For someone who has navigated its depths, uh, who has ever um, done some of those, whether, I mean, you, whether it's snorkeling, and you get to see the beauty of God's creation that's happening underwater. Uh, my daughter this year has just learned to swim, and it was literally like she had discovered a new world. She had finally got over the fear and put this mask on. She looks so funny. She's wearing this mask, and she just is underwater. It's like her happy place. She's swimming around, looking and experiencing. It's like this new world. You see, there's it, it, nothing like sitting on the sidelines and seeing something from a distance. It's a totally different experience when you know it, when you feel it, when you come. And here, it's one thing to know about God. In Colossians 1, we studied Colossians earlier in the year. The idea that in Colossians 1 where it tells, it tells us these great truths about God, that Jesus is the, the image, not just like an image like, hey, here's a, a picture. The wording there, as Paul writes, is he's the exact imprint. He has full deity. He is the perfect image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. How do we know what God is like? We look at Jesus. And how do we know the heart of Jesus? Why do we know what he's like? It's because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In Leviticus 26, 12, as God is giving the law to Israel in the desert, God speaks of his intent to do something. He says, I will walk among you and be your God and that you will be my people. He longs to be with us. And I want us to read this afresh and anew. I'm sure you've read it maybe already this year in this season. But Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse um, 18, says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, found to, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that we already read 700 years prior. And here's the quote. From Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's a remarkable story. It's the story of God's coming. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that as we look at and answer just a few questions this morning and, and, and really reflecting on how you came and why you came, I pray that you would speak to our hearts afresh and anew a story that we've potentially heard tens, twenties, thirty, fifty, hundreds of times. 
But I pray that through your spirit, you would awaken afresh and anew a love for you and a devotion and a worshipful heart towards you. So speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Again, my kids love to ask questions. I'm not sure if they're questioning or questions sometimes. It's a little bit debatable on if they're just questioning me all the time or actually asking questions. But my kids, they ask questions, and I want them to ask questions. They're always asking me, why, Dad? Why are you doing this? Why do we have to go to bed at midnight? I'm like, bro, it's midnight. Like, you need to be in bed. There's no, there's no like, why to this question. It's just like, you are not, I mean, like, you know, you start, all of a sudden, my oldest, right, he's like a teenager and stuff. It's like, all of a sudden, you're seeing that stuff, and you're like, oh, man, I've, I've worked with teenagers for, for I don't know how many years, 15 years, and now here it comes, one in my own home uh, who's going to question everything that I ask. But they ask questions, and I do appreciate their questions. I love when uh, I get to, to, they ask me to lay, in the, lay with them for a few minutes at night, and they just, and all of a sudden they're open and they're asking questions. Well, how come this happens, or how come mom did this today or didn't do that or why did you do this and they're asking these questions they're asking questions about scripture because we've doing family devotions uh, and over this past month we have been looking uh, at the kind of the advent season as in our family devotions been looking at the the line of christ it's been extraordinary to look at afresh and anew to see how in matthew even in matthew one it gives us you know something that we usually skip over in your bible reading you're like all right that's a bunch of names i don't know how to say so we just kind of move on and skip over it but to see the line of christ how matthew displays that for us and luke displays that for us and my kids are they're asking questions they they're curious and they're asking like how come this is this way or why did why did god choose to bring blessing through jacob rather than esau Maybe a question that you've pondered before as an adult. Potentially like, well, Esau's the firstborn. Why didn't it pass down? Well, Jacob tricked his father. Like, why would, why would the trickery of Jacob work this way? Or we watch Jacob's life. If you've read Genesis, it's not pretty. You watch Isaac. You see some pretty flaw. You see some pretty big flaws. You look at the, the line of Judah. Judah, another descendant of, of Jesus, as you're working your way through that. And you're like, Judah? I mean, remember that story about Joseph and being put in a pit? You, don't, you remember that kind of thing? Like, they wanted to kill their brother? You know, all those kind of things. And you, when you look at that, you see, man, God is coming from this like broken, sinful line of people. And I want us to see and reflect on this this morning. We're just going to answer some simple questions this morning. Simple outline. How he came and why he came. Very simply, look at how he came. I think we already know these things, but I want us to fresh ponder them and think about them. So how did Jesus come? Listen to this. We take this for granted if you've been following Jesus for a while, this statement. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in, the way, in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they had sexual relations together, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 23 this prophecy that we've already read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, just let's stop for a second and like go like, what is happening? How is this possible? How is a virgin mother are two words that shouldn't go together. A virgin and a mother don't go together. They don't they don't work. But here we're told that Mary is a virgin and that the the Holy Spirit has has placed inside of her womb, gives her this womb and places inside of it. Jesus, Emmanuel. 
I mean, here's the thought. First of all, we see that Jesus is biologically a man. He comes and is born of a woman in full humanity. He comes as a human being with lungs that needed to develop in that womb, with a heart that was beating, and with ears that were forming to hear, with eyes that were forming as well to be able to see the need. And when we think of his eyes being formed, as he looks on the crowds, as we've been seeing in Mark, and has compassion, that in his humanity he has feelings and he has he has emotions. We see him in the shortest verse in the scripture. You know, you have those little trivia games. You know, it's the story of Lazarus and when he dies. And when Lazarus dies, we have this one little two words. Jesus wept. Human. Humanity. He comes biologically as a man. He's born of a woman. But also he comes legally in this way. He comes he, Legally he becomes an heir to the throne of David through the tribe of Judah, through the lion and the root of David, the kingly line, the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, if you read Isaiah, if you read elsewhere in Malachi and others, you see the psalmist even himself proclaiming these promises. The promise is that the king, the Messiah, is going to come as a family member of David. The kingly line is going to continue through David, even though if you watch Israel's history, it gets broken. It's a mess. The fallenness and the, the sinfulness of the, the, the kingdom and its brokenness, even, even in David's own family and his own kids and dividing the kingdom. But yet, legally, he was an heir through Joseph. You see, for me, this is unique because I think of Joseph as an adoptive father. For us and my family, when we adopted Graceland, our daughter, um, in 2017, I think, 18, I don't always forget. <laughs> um, she just turned eight yesterday. Um, and uh, we adopted her at three and a half, so you do the math. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. But when we adopted her, I remember... When we go over there, we're in the country for a few days, kind of getting, our, our <laughs> getting everything figured out again. We had the boys with us as well. We visit a few places in Beijing, and then we go to Xi'an, and we eventually go to meet her. And when we meet her, we see just the broken, like, like literally there's this girl who has just been broken because of um, her life, because she was abandoned. And here she grows up for three and a half years in this orphanage and, and probably mistreated and other things and don't know the extent of any of these things and don't know hardly any of her history line. But there was a point the next day, so we get to, we get to take her with us, and you don't have the legal, she's not legally our child yet until the next day, but then eventually they're taking footprints and fingerprints, and then they're taking all these things from us, and then they all of a sudden give us all these documents, and then so eventually I'm signing my name and signing her name to be Graceland Shansu Brook Hill. She becomes, she takes on my last name. And so legally now, she is my child. She gets all the rights as my two boys do. She has every right as they do. She is fully, completely my child. When you think of Joseph here, Joseph takes in this child. But I want you to just pause. This isn't really the part of the message that, that was outlined for, for this morning, but you can't help but see this in this story. I mean, think about this. Look at it again. Mary had been betrothed, and we don't even get this because our people are so fickle even in marriage. 
Um, we can fall out of love and move on to b- bigger and better things or skinnier things maybe. I don't know. Not bigger and better maybe. I don't know. But, you know, we're, we're pursuing all these things and we, we treat marriage so poorly and weakly. And in this culture, marriage was serious and it was, it, was, um, it was a commitment. It was a covenant between a man and a woman before God. And when they would go through the betrothal process and being betrothed, it was this engagement period. But it was, it was a legal thing. It wasn't like it was just, hey, let me put a ring on your finger and we'll say you're mine and, 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 and we'll, we'll promise to have a, a future wedding date. No, this was a legal commitment and it had some legal documents behind it. And so here they were committing to one another and so they would wait a year as they're preparing the house and all those things. And so Joseph during this time is preparing. He's committed himself and they've, with all their arrangements and all those things that he's going to marry this woman. And during this betrothed time, it was, it was basically in our culture, it would be as if you're committing, like as in marriage, you've already committed to this person like we would in marriage, except you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna avoid each other sexually. And so for a year, they're staying uh, pure in a way. And can you imagine, you're Joseph, and you find out that the woman that you have committed to marry, that you've already gone through the process of, you're betrothed to her, you're committing, you have been faithful, you're serving, you're preparing uh, for her to come and, and be in your family and take her as your wife. And Joseph, before they came together, before they had sexual relations together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, notice these words, her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And you say, wait, divorce? I thought that was a marriage thing. Again, that's what I was meaning. And so during this betrothal period between this engagement, it was a legal document as well. And so he could, for just reasons, divorce her. He could actually shame her because she's pregnant and this is not my child. I can shame you. And so he could have done these things, but no, He doesn't do those things. And God, when he speaks to him in this dream through this angel, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's like, all right, I'll just do it quietly. I don't want to shame her. I don't want to mistreat her. I will do this quietly. I'll just move on. How could I marry this woman who has been unfaithful to me? And so he's considering these things. He's wondering, what should I do? What should I do? What can I do? To put her to shame, and he says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that we've seen a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Can you imagine being Joseph? I mean, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Can you imagine? But then here, this angel of the Lord speaks to you and says, no, no. I know you might be considering divorce. I know you're, you're, you're a just man. You're going to do this in a, in a proper and delicate way. But here, this child was placed in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure it's like, I mean, utter confusion. I mean, again, we take this because we've heard the Christmas story hundreds of times potentially in the virgin birth. It's just something we, we say and we even communicate that we believe, but it's radical for these people. Can you imagine you're Mary and Joseph? And you're like, wait, what? This has never happened in history. 
And so here he comes in this very unique way. We can focus on the humility and all those things. But ultimately, I just want you to see his humanity. That he's God with us in human form. He is completely human. He comes as a human being who's going to be developing in Mary's womb. And he's going to be birthed in a unique way as we see in the the book of Luke as well. He's going to be placed in a, a stable filled with hay. Yes, we can look at the humility of that, but I just want you to see how he came. He came in human form, and he's adopted, and it all is fitting with the prophecies of old. He's, he's now, we can see, oh wait, he, he's the Messiah. He's coming through Joseph's family. He's legally adopted in Joseph's family. Here he comes as the Messiah, falling in line with Scripture has pointed us to. And so here's what I want us to, to spend the rest of our time with is this, Why? Not just how. I think we can focus on that at Christmas and be like, oh, there's Jesus in a, in a, in a, in a manger. And that, that can move us to some sentimental thoughts, right? It's like the manger and the picture of the manger. We can, we can see like the cattle and he's restless and all. I mean, we, the focus, though, is that he came in human form. The focus is his humanity. But also we see through his life his divinity, that he is, in fact, God. So why did he came? He came to restore what was broken in the fall. He comes to restore the brokenness in our society and in our world. He comes, and we've been watching this in Mark. We're seeing how he's coming, and he's healing, and he's, and he's, and he's preaching the good news. And he's saying, repent and believe the gospel. He's restoring what was broken in the fall. Not only does he come to bring restoration and healing to the world, he came as our representative. You see, this is the importance of his humanity. He comes in human form and he identifies with us in our weaknesses. I mean, think of this. He came. He stepped from heaven's throne. John 1, he is God incarnate. He is fully God. He's the God who has existed for all of eternity, never once to be born. My wife was asking me about someone that she's gotten to know a little bit, and, and she was like, maybe a little, because people can get confused with Mormon, and also you hear Latter-day Saints, and connecting that that's, the, I was telling her that's the same, and explaining some of their beliefs on God. They don't believe in, in the, the deity, they believe that God, that, that, that Jesus is a God, but they also believe that people can become gods as well. And they believe that he's the firstborn of creation and all these things, but not taking it as the, in preeminence, but also like he was a created thing as well. And they can have these very vague views of who God is, but scripture points us clearly that Jesus is in fact fully God and that he stepped from heaven's throne. He didn't play a game. I want you to think about this. He didn't play a game of cosmic hide and seek. You know, good luck trying to find me. See if you can find me around this star hanging out in the universe somewhere. Maybe you'll build a bigger telescope to find me. No, he takes the initiative to come and invade our lives. The God who spoke the world into existence, the one who rules and reigns over all creation, has a name for every star. I mean, supposedly there are millions, if not billions, of galaxies which are just massive, massive clusters of stars. Scripture tells us he has a name for every single one of them. This is Jesus. This is the God of the universe. This God isn't hiding. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not this just cosmic force. No, he is God 
And here in the, in the incarnation, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, he comes in human form, but he takes it on. Uh, in, in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, as, as in one of the verses, it talks about how in veiled the incarnate deity. The idea of that he was, his deity was, some of his deity is veiled in the incarnation. It doesn't mean he became less God by taking on human form. No, he was fully God, but by putting on humanity, on deity, some of the deity is veiled. It's not fully clearly seen. You can't, you can't, you know, you don't see, when you have deity, you're not there and you're also here. You're not at this conversation over there and at this conversation. You have have a bodily form on earth. He comes and it's, it's veiled, but the idea is he is fully God. And I want you to think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, he came in human form. He comes to be with mankind. He came to save sinful humanity. God comes and he says, no more messengers and prophets no more, no more other Jonas, no more Isaiah's, no more Elijah's, no more John the Baptist to proclaim, here, Jesus is going to come, or the Messiah will, is a savior of the world. No, he says, I'm coming. I think of this with, with an engagement to, to my wife as well. Like, I didn't send a representative for me to go like, hey, will you propose to, my, my, uh, to Amanda for me? I didn't go like to my best friend, like, man, I'm a little nervous, I'm a little scared. I'm not sure what to say. Will you go and ask Amanda if she will marry, not you, me, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't send a messenger to do that. I don't ask someone else to go speak on my behalf in that way. No, I went to her and I got down on my knee and asked her to marry, <laughs> marry me. Yes, I was nervous. I was terrified. <laughs> um, and all of those things, but I go I don't, and so Jesus, he's like, no more sending messengers, no more messages. The Savior of the world is come. And he's going, as we're seeing in Mark, from town to town, proclaiming this good news. And he comes, and what brought him to come? Why would he come? It was a motivation from a love for mankind and in complete obedience to the Father. Love motivated Christ to come. He didn't send angels to do his work for him. No, he came. And in his coming, we see things about him that we can also follow. He comes to help us to see an example of how to live. That's why we're called Christians, Christ followers. We follow Christ. We're his disciples. We follow him. And so we get an example to follow. I like what Michael Wilkins, in his comments on this passage, points to about four specific ways Christ models how we as followers should pattern our lives. He says, Jesus had perfect fellowship with the Father. That's one thing that we should have, fellowship with the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father's will perfectly. We should obey the Father's will. Jesus displayed a love for all people. We should love all people. Jesus' love was demonstrated by freely giving up his life for us. Jesus gives us that example as followers of his to lay down our lives. The call for husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? And gave himself up for her. 
we pattern our lives after Christ. He is our model. He is our example. The way he had compassion for people, being a servant, sinless, love for people, all of these speak to what God is like. And if we are called to be like him, here is how we know what to do and act like. It's because he came. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He came. And why did he come? He came to redeem all of us, sinful people, to call on him for, for that, so that with all that would call on the name of Christ and repent of their sins and put their faith in him, they would be saved. In Hebrews 4, 16, we, we did this in our scripture reading last week. Here's the only way, because he came, we can only, we can only draw near because, and come into his presence because he came as our great high priest to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice, it is called a throne of grace. It's a free gift, giving us access to his presence. I want to offer this thought to you. It hit me like a ton of bricks this week. I couldn't wait to share it with you. I, I wanted to let it really sink in because it spoke to me personally. And it was a, someone on, on Twitter, a pastor that I follow on Twitter, he shared this quote from John Piper, and I want to read it to you kind of slowly to let it sink in, because the idea that God is with us, that God and man come to t- together in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, why is that so important? Why couldn't God come as spirit? Why couldn't God just come as God the spirit and come and rescue people? Why couldn't he just wipe the slate clean? Why couldn't he just say, no, you're forgiven. I forgive you because I'm a gracious and good God. Why couldn't he just forgive? Why come and live to die? Why come to live, literally to live about 33 years and die on a cruel criminal's cross? Why come? Why can't you, if you're God, why can't you do this another way? Why isn't there an easier way? Why isn't there a less harsh way? Why is there a less painful way? Why come in human form? Listen to these words that John Piper himself penned. He said this, The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation taking on human form, that's the incarnation word. The incarnation, his coming, is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas who would, have a pl- would have a place to kiss, and there would be a place for the spit to run down that soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall, so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. Hear this for you. Listen, let's not get distracted by the manger. The manger is there to lead us to the cross. He didn't come just to heal people and to 
um, to, to raise the dead and to even preach. He preaches because he's preaching he is the good news. He preaches, but all of his life and all of his humanity, I mean, remind, remind me of that first line, the incarnation is the pre- preparation of nerve endings. The thought that he was given as they're forming in Mary's womb, nerves to experience extreme and extraordinary pain on our behalf at the cross. He experienced all of these things for us to redeem sinful people. We were looking in the summer at the Psalms and looking at Psalm 130. And here is why he came. He comes to redeem Israel of all their iniquity, of all their sin. He comes, and here it is in Matthew 1. We've already read it. This is why we're going to name him Jesus, Joseph. Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. How is Jesus going to save people from their sin? He is going to be our representative. He's going to come in human form, but he's going to live the life that you and I failed to live. All of us failed to live in perfect obedience to the Father. Here he comes and he experiences, I mean, think of this. He has human form. The sleepless night, like the crying baby. It's not like, I mean, do you think, I mean, I get to hear it, especially, with, I mean, we did too, but it's like, it's like gone to another level, it seems like, with parenting is the sound machine, <laughs> right? Like sound machine. Can you imagine? There's no sound machine. When, when the cows start mooing and all that stuff, Jesus is probably stirring. He's probably crying, and Mary's like, will the cows just shut up, please? <laughs> right? I don't have a, I need a sound machine. Who has a sound machine? Right? There's, no, there's none of that. There's not a quiet place. You know, we sing Silent Night, but you're like, mm, <laughs> there's, there's moos and happening. All this, all this stuff's happening. Right? And Jesus stirring and crying, maybe, and all these things. He is fully human. He has nerve endings in all of his body. He has a back and shoulders, and he has hands that are going to take nails pierced through him. He has feet that are going to have nails pierced through them. He's going to have a side that's going to be punctured with a sword. He experiences the whip and the cat of nine tails, all for love and all for grace, so that he can take your place. You see, the gospel, the the story of Christmas is not just a manger and a baby and a a cradle. No, it's a a God who comes to identify with sinful man, to live the life in perfect obedience that we should have lived so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for me and for you. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christmas is that God is with us. He came. And here's the great promise. What this means for us is not just that He came once to forgive us. No, He promises, as I was saying in Matthew 28, He promises to be with us so that when you're faced with temptation this week to live selfishly and self-centeredly, when you're tempted to get angry and and, and yell at your kids, even though it's Christmas, (laughs) right? You know, when when you're upset at your boss who wants to make you work on Christmas Eve or something, and you're upset about these things, and you want to complain, and you want to whine, or you want to look at your situation and pout, Jesus knows. Jesus cares. Jesus loves. And how do we know all these things? It is because Emmanuel came. God with us. So that he could save us from our sins and to give us a life worthy to live. He gives you a life. He doesn't just say, well, right, you're saved. Woo, let me just transport you to heaven. No, he leaves you here with a mission. It's to mission to carry out his mission. 
It's a continuation of that, and he's promised of his presence with us. He came once, and he's going to come again, but he's like, I'm not leaving you. I've given you my spirit to dwell you as a follower of Jesus, to live and to be a comforter and to help you and to guide you and to lead you to live the life that I have lived and to identify with me. We cannot do any of those things if Christ didn't come. This is why he came, and this is why we celebrate Christmas. And listen, this is why I want to encourage you to celebrate Christmas, to not just get focused on gifts and things and the sentimental going of looking at Christmas lights. We do those things. We made some, we made, we were baking, my kids are rolling and baking sugar cookies yesterday. It was a lot of fun. We enjoy those things. Um, We will do other cool, fun things for Christmas. We'll go look at Santa, see Santa, you know, all those things, get pictures, and no one will, everyone will be crying and all those kind of things. No one likes Santa for some reason, you know whatever. We still do it, you know. It's like, come on, you're going to do this, son. (laughs) Get in front of Santa. Um, We do all these things, and they distract us, pull us away. Don't let that happen to you this week. Remind yourself daily that Jesus came. I will probably email you this, this quote so you can hear it again and read it again as it impacted me over this past week. That Jesus came, and he experienced all of these things in humanity, in the human aspect of God incarnate. And he experienced all those things for me and for you. Scripture tells us that by faith we can have eternal life. We'll just repent of our sins and put our faith in this one who came, Emmanuel, God with us. I encourage you to do that if you never have. Put your faith in Christ alone. And for those that are followers of Christ, Follow his example. Last week we were looking at, or a few weeks ago, we were looking at Jesus getting alone with the Father, prioritizing time with the Father. This week, maybe you're going to have a few days off. It'll be easy to get distracted. Spend time. Get alone with the Father. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his word. Maybe read some of the stories. And then maybe if you have a little bit of a cross-references in your Bible somewhere, you can look and you'll see like a little, a little Y or an X or a, a number there. And maybe like when you're, as you're reading the Christmas story, man, like that's, there's a lot of prophecy that happens in the Christmas story. Let that lead you down a path in Isaiah. Start reading Isaiah. Read in other places that it takes you different places. And just spend time with the God who wants to spend time with you. He came to be with his people because he longs to be with us. So experience that afresh and anew this Christmas season. Let me pray.